If you ask, open up your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of James, uh, chapter 5. James, chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 13 to 18. And um, again, I'll be reading from the NIV version. And just a reminder as I read this, that this is the Word of God. James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. It's going to invite Peter. To, yeah. Um, yeah, if you just came in today, welcome. Uh, my name is Pete. And uh, look, it was really lovely to share God's Word with you last night. You guys have been super friendly. Um, you guys are just the most wonderful group of people. So um, my next talk, no, my next talk is about being a welcoming church. I almost feel like I don't need to give the talk. So do you want to nominate another topic instead? I'll just do that. No, I'm sure there's still stuff that we'd um, learn together. But um, hey, look, I realize that the uh, e-booklets don't actually have the outlines to my talks. Um, so uh, if you're a note taker, don't worry, because all of the main points will be shown up on the um, overhead as well. So that's cool. Okay, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to dive into uh, being a prayerful church. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for bringing us here this morning. We pray that you might shake us out of any sleepiness, especially those who may not have slept so well. We pray that as we engage with your word, that you might really speak to us. Help me to be uh, a vehicle for you to speak through your word to your people here at Kingsway today. Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to receive and give me the ability to speak everything that you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in the year 1700, this man by the name of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Great name, huh? He was born into a wealthy, uh, aristocratic family, but he was a faithful follower of Jesus, and he always put Jesus first and money second. When Zinzendorf was only 27 years old, he took into his home a refugee from the region of Moravia, which is actually modern Czech Republic. Now, before long, he had 300 Moravian refugees, all living on his estate, and he sort of became the spiritual leader. Under Zinzendorf's leadership, they all prayed together, they studied God's Word together, and they grew spiritually together. In 1727, they experienced revival. After gathering uh, together to pray, and they were praying for an outpouring of God's Spirit, God actually did pour out His Spirit in a special way, and they experienced revival. Now, in light of this, because it came out of a prayer meeting, they decided to pray more. So they decided to do a around-the-clock prayer vigils. This is what they did. They designated a place of prayer in the village, and they prayed in groups of three for one-hour slots. So you got that? At any given hour, three people were praying together in the place of prayer. 
So they did this. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, three people were always praying in that place of prayer. Do you know how long they did that for? 110 years. You got that? I mean, no, that is, that is worthy of... Oh, it really is. You, you think about that. 110-year, 24-hour prayer meeting. How many generations... Some people grew up, I mean, there were generations that grew up only knowing this. Now, that was a prayerful church, wasn't it? Um, we've got four topics this weekend. A missional church, a prayerful church, a welcoming church, a church that does life together. You know what? As an outsider, if there's only one that I really long for you guys at Kingsway, it's this one. If there's only one, if I could just pick one, I long for Kingsway to be a prayerful church. Because more than anything else, we should want to be prayerful people. But the reality is, we aren't so prayerful, are we? Now, why, why is that the case? I want to go through some reasons why we don't pray. And maybe that will help us to pray. Um, we don't pray, firstly, because God is too small. There are two ways in which we make God small. We firstly doubt that he is able and then we doubt that he is willing. Now, it's really interesting. The Gospel of Mark, don't have to turn to it. I'll go through it. Um, but in Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 1, you've got two episodes that really show that God is both able and willing. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus' disciples, they can't drive out a demon-possessed boy. And so the father brings the boy to Jesus, and he begs Jesus instead. In Mark nine twenty-two, he says, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus replies to him, If you can... Everything is possible for him who believes. And then he heals the boy. Right? You see the issue here? The, father's, the father of the boy said, if you can, if you are able, please heal him. And Jesus says, I am able. Okay? See, this may not be a big struggle for many here. At least we, in principle, we do know that God is able, right? Like we believe in a God who created the universe. We believe in a God of miracles. But in reality, honestly, ask yourself, is that what you believed? When you pray, when you talk to God, when you beg Him, when you plead with Him, do you really expect that He does the impossible or even the unlikely? But the Bible reminds us, Mark chapter 9 at least, is one place where God is able. He is able to do anything. But then secondly, it's no good if God is able, but He is unwilling, right? Like God can do everything, but what if He's not willing to do it? So in Mark chapter 1, again, you don't need to turn to it, but there's an episode of a leprous man. He's got leprosy. He comes to Jesus and then in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, he says to Jesus, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, you know how he's different to the, boy, uh, the father of the boy we talked about in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, is if you're able, this guy knew that Jesus was able. He just wasn't sure that Jesus was willing because he's a man with leprosy, because all his life he's been rejected by everyone else. Why would anyone be willing to heal him? Well, verse 41 in Mark chapter 1, Jesus, filled with compassion, we read, replies, I am willing. Be clean. So remember that God is a good father, our heavenly father. He's better than any earthly father. He is willing to grant our request. He really is. Um, I'm a father of four kids, um, and I'm a sinful father, like all of you fathers here. But you know what? Even as a sinful father, <laughs> my kids melt my heart. Um, and if you've got kids, you'll know this. 
As a parent, you don't just give them the bare absolute necessities, do you? It's not as if you say to your kids, only ask me for what you absolutely need. Because if you ask me for anything that is a luxury item or just a desire of your heart, I'm sorry, kid, you're not going to get it. I'm just not willing to do that. It doesn't work like that, does it? As parents, we don't just respond to our kids' needs. We respond to their desires. If it's something that they want, but it is, we're able to do it and it's good for them, they melt our hearts, right? And sometimes the desires of their hearts can be a little bit outrageous or a little bit, you know, strange. But because you love your kids, you love to hear them ask and they melt your heart and you want to give it to them. And that's us as sinful parents. And the Bible tells us in somewhere like Luke 11, how much more so your father in heaven loved to hear the requests of his children. Now at this point, sometimes some of you will be probably thinking, hey, okay, I do that. How come I've asked God? I've prayed about stuff. And he hasn't granted those prayers. Or he hasn't even necessarily answered. He seems unwilling. Have you ever found yourself thinking that? I have. So why is it that God sometimes seems unwilling or he's not answering prayers? I'll give you a few reasons. Uh, Firstly, though, we've got to remember that he is God and he is a good father and therefore he is also bigger and wiser than we are. Like sometimes he doesn't grant our requests because our requests, we don't have the foresight to see that they would actually hurt us. Again, imperfect analogy as a human father, I don't grant every request my kids ask because sometimes I know it would actually hurt them. One of my kids at the moment is under a, my youngest child, he's 12. He, he got in trouble and he's under a computer ban, so he can't play any devices. And for like a 12-year-old boy, that's like torture. Like he'd rather lose a limb, probably. And so since he got the ban, it's for the rest of the weekend, he can't ha- you know, touch his devices until Monday. It's pretty cruel, I know, but um, he deserved it. Uh, anyway... He, um, he's been like pleading, oh, can I do this to get it back? Um, what if, and he's, you know, typical 12 years, trying to manipulate us. He's just trying everything under the sun. Do you know what? Because I love him and I'm a good and wise father, or at least in this case, I, I say no, I'm sorry. You know, you've got to live with the punishment. You've got to learn from your mistakes, right? I don't grant everything because I know that if I give in now, it's going to hurt him later, isn't it? Yeah. So God is a good Heavenly Father, a perfect Heavenly Father. Sometimes we don't see, but our requests might hurt us. Other times, though, our requests are right and good. But you know what? In His wisdom, He has something even better planned. Like Some of you will know this in experience. There's something that you really wanted, you really asked for, and you thought, it is good, it is a godly thing. And then He's closed that door. And that time, you're like, why? But then years later, you look back and you think, oh, wow, that's why. There was something even better. You just didn't see it then. Aren't I glad that God said no to me then? Do you see what I mean? You've got to allow God to be able to do that. He's a good and wise father. Something better planned. But another reason that he sometimes doesn't answer is not because he's unwilling, but he actually is trying to help us become more patient. And he wants us to persevere in our asking. Like he's actually trying to tell us that asking once or twice, right, is not enough. He wants us to be like the persistent widow. He wants us to keep persisting in prayer. Now, why would he want to teach us that? Well, that leads to my next point. Because sometimes we don't pray often, I think. It's because not only is God too small, but because we are too big. In fact, this is probably the main reason I don't pray, or at least I don't pray as much as I would like to. 
Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but I pray as almost like a token sign-off, right? Like a kind regards at the end of a letter or email. It's just token. It's just because I'm a Christian and I know I should be praying about it. Now, I'm obviously not talking about, you know, the Christian life is not, I do nothing until I pray and receive an answer. It's not like you wake up every morning and you're like paralyzed, not knowing what to do. Don't decide anything until you pray about God lead me. No, God does give us something called wisdom and we are to act and we are to do things um, based on what he's given us in his word about wisdom. So it's not as if I've got to hear an answer to prayer before I do anything. But I, I do think, though, if you're like me, then you'll know that there are so many moments of crisis, of anxiety, of fears, of doubts, of uncertainty. And what I do is I turn to myself, I even turn to others, before I consider turning to God. Is that you? It happens so many times to me. I try everything else and then went, oh, yeah, I probably should pray about that because I've got no recourse left. It becomes the sign-off at the end, a token last resort. Do you remember the passage that we read just then? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Actually, we didn't read this. We read James 5. But anyway, this is 1 Peter 5. Look what it says there. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, do you you see what it's saying? He actually opposes the proud. In other words, if we are self-reliant, that's pride, God is actually against us. God hates pride. He wants to wean pride out of us because the essence of pride is idolatry, putting ourselves in the place of God. And there's nothing more sinful and hurtful than idolatry. He opposes the proud. If we are self-reliant, God is against us. But notice the flip side. If we recognize our deep need before God, if we are humble, that without Him our plans and purposes, well, they're nothing. Our gifts, our talents, our hard work is nothing. Then He will give us more grace. It's the economy of God. You see, it's easy, and especially because I'm looking out there and the vast majority of you are Asians. Hardworking, high-achieving, or at least we're told to be high-achieving, reliant on our ability type Asians. It's easier to think, you know, I'm here because I've put in the hard work. Right? God helps those who help themselves, right? I'm put in the hours, I've put in the Study the work to reap the rewards. It's easy to think like that. We're brought up all of our lives with this idea of of relying on ourselves and our talents. There are probably very few situations, especially if you're younger, by the way, in which you genuinely believe you can't handle it. But I'll tell you what, you live long enough, and maybe even if, if, though you are young, you've experienced this, it only takes, it doesn't take a lot. And I think the last two years has shown us that, right? Like the whole world can shut down because of a virus. How little control we've had. But in my own life, a bout of sickness, some unforeseen circumstances, deaths of those I love, what others would call bad luck, like it doesn't take a lot to realize that actually we have very little control over our lives. That actually, in the end end of the day, very little is dependent on me. And if you want to talk about hard work and talent and as if you've earned everything that you've done, just remember there are people way more talented and hardworking than you. 
But they were born, for example, in the slums of Nairobi. And because they were born there, instead of in a good, high-achieving family like yours, with all their talents, with all their abilities, they won't be able to achieve a fraction of what you've achieved. But did you choose to be born in the family you were born in? Did they choose to be born in the... Do you see what I mean? Actually, all of our lives are in God's hands. We are far less able and able to be self-reliant than often we think we are. Um, To the world, dependence and surrender seems weak and stupid. Uh, Atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche despised and ridiculed weakness and reliance and this Christian idea of humility. But for the person who belongs to Jesus, the servant king, we know that power comes through humbling ourselves before God. And remember Jesus, like Jesus is God in human flesh, yeah? The Son of God. He had all the power of the universe available to him. You would think that if Jesus had all of that at his fingertips, he would never need to pray, would he? And yet, so many times in the gospel, what do we read? Jesus retreated. Jesus spent time praying. Why did Jesus need to pray? Because Jesus chose to model what it's like to live in complete surrender and submission and humility to God his Father. And how often I think I am better than Jesus. That I don't need to pray. Even though the Lord and Master of the universe who had all power at his disposal chose to pray and rely on his Father. So back to my previous point. Why does sometimes, why is it that sometimes God delays in answering and granting our prayer requests? It may be because of this. He is trying to remind us of just how needy we are. It's actually a good thing not to have a genie God. Rub the lamp. Poof. Master, what can I grant you? Now, it doesn't work like that. It's really good when we get ourselves away from this idea that God is our genie that he can respond to us and he needs to respond to us whenever it's convenient for us. And perhaps that may be a reason why there are some good prayers that you've prayed that he hasn't answered yet. He's teaching us something. And maybe he hasn't granted it yet because you've asked a few times, but you gave up asking. Perhaps he's wanting to teach you to be like the persistent widow in Jesus' parable who just kept bugging the unjust judge. Yeah, and remember Jesus' point? If an unjust judge is going to grant the wishes of the persistent widow, how much more is a loving Heavenly Father going to grant the wishes of his own children who are persistent? Perhaps he wants you to keep asking. And have you given up asking for something because you've been discouraged? Well, keep going. That's showing dependence and reliance. That's showing humility. And he grants grace to the humble. But here's another possible reason. Perhaps he actually wants you not just to pray it yourself, but he wants you to ask others to pray with you and for you. See, the truth is that many of us don't want to ask others to pray for us. We tell ourselves it's because, well, we're polite. We don't want to burden and trouble others. But you know what? Behind that is probably just pride, often. Like, you don't want others to know where you're struggling and why you're struggling, and that's why you don't share your prayer points. Maybe... God is withholding some answer that you seek because he actually wants you to be humble enough, not just to persistently pray, 
but to share that struggle with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with those around you, to be vulnerable enough to say, hey, I'm struggling here, and I need you to pray for me and with me. Have you thought of that? Okay, we don't pray because God is too small. We don't pray because we are too big. But third reason, we don't pray, surprisingly maybe, because we are too small. This reason might surprise you. Um, I've talked to many, many people who don't value prayer, or at least it's pretty token, because of this reason. And actually, for years and years, this is actually what I thought, okay? Uh, Let me tell you what the thinking goes like. It goes like this. God has determined everything already. All right, he is sovereign. He is the predestinating God. He's determined everything. He knows best. He's going to do what he's going to do. So my prayers may be important for lots of other reasons, like, As I said, it humbles me, it exalts God's goodness, it's therapeutic for my worries. But let's be honest, what my prayers doesn't, my my prayers don't actually do, my prayers don't actually change anything, right? They don't actually change anything. If anything's going to happen, it'll happen because God has ordained it to happen. God is sovereign. My prayers don't make a difference to reality, really. So prayer is important because it changes me. Not because it changes the world, not because it changes God's plans. Now, admit it. If you are a good Calvinist, and if you know what that means, you know what that means. If you're a good Calvinist, like me, you're tempted to believe that, right? And that may be a reason why your prayer life is stunted. Because you don't actually believe prayer does, really does anything. The problem with that is the Bible. Problem with that is the Bible. In the Old Testament, I'll give you just four examples Abraham, Moses, Amos, Jonah, just four examples, where we read that their pleading with God, their intercession, their prayers, in a sense, actually changes God's mind. Now, I know that rests uncomfortably for good Calvinists, but let's just sit with what the text actually says. It actually causes God. Literally, to repent is the word they'll use. Now, I'm not saying that God is weak. I'm not saying God actually changes his mind like we do. All right, 1 Samuel 15, 29, God is not like a man that he should change his mind. But if we're to take these texts seriously, at least what it's saying is that God is very open to the requests of his people. The requests actually do make a difference. There is a state of affairs that would not have happened if these people did not intercede. You see, that's at the very least, what they're saying. Again, I want you to listen to the many other parts of Scripture. Just a few there for you. James 4. You do not have because you do not ask. Jesus says, Matthew 21, If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Luke 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, to him who knocks the door will be opened. Jesus to his disciples, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now again, do we take these verses seriously? Really seriously? Because God is not just inviting us, he's commanding us to ask, to seek, to pray Because there is a state of affairs, there are things that he wants to do that will not happen if we don't ask. However, 
this does not mean that we've abandoned God being sovereign. Now, there are those who do. There are those who take this, that side of things, like I just talked about, and then when it comes to God's sovereignty, they have an, another view of God. It's called the openness of God theology. Don't worry if you don't remember that. But the idea there is that God doesn't actually determine the future. He doesn't even really know the future. He is just that much smarter than us. So he's like a master chess player who knows where all the possible moves might go. So he can kind of predict based on patterns. But there is still risk for him in regards to the future. He doesn't determine it. He just kind of predicts better than us. Now that's openness of God theology. Uh, I want to tell you again that that's one way to try and resolve this, but it's a problem because the Bible also uh, is a problem for that view. So, for example, Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purposes that prevails. Ephesians 1, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Okay. See, God is absolutely sovereign, right down to the nitty-gritty, right down to the decisions and desires of a person's heart. And I want to say, if this were not true, if God wasn't completely sovereign, it would be pointless to pray for someone's conversion. Like, do you pray for someone to become a Christian? I hope you do. We did last night. You wouldn't do it if God wasn't sovereign. Right? Because there'd be no point in that, in that God is no more able to change someone's heart than you are. See, here's, there's a bit of an irony. Some say that because we believe in God's absolute sovereignty, we don't bother praying. Yeah, and again, as I said, good Calvinist, that might be what you believe. God is absolutely sovereign. Why, why bother praying? Actually, you know what? For people of the Bible, for, for, for followers of Jesus in the early church especially, who prayed a lot, they believed in God's absolute sovereignty. That actually made them want to pray more. Because the flip side is this. If God is not completely in control, it actually is a disincentive to pray. Like if the future is uncertain even to God and He ultimately can't control people and events, then even if you pray, He can't really do anything, really. So, it, you know what I mean? Like the flip side, if you don't believe in God's sovereignty, that actually is also a disincentive to pray. So we've got two things, right? And we've, hopefully you see, we've got a bit of a conundrum. How can we bring together both A and B? How can God be completely sovereign and the future actually have been planned and determined by Him and yet my prayers actually make a difference? Like, How can these both be true? Do you see where we're at? Because unless you resolve this tension, you will not want to pray. Do you see? If God is completely sovereign, my prayers don't make a difference, why bother praying? If God isn't completely sovereign, again, why bother praying? We're only going to get to prayerfulness if our theology has both. So, how do we resolve it? Well, here is an idea that I want you to sit with. Without God, we cannot. Without, well, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. Here's the answer. Here's how it works. God, in His sovereignty, has actually ordained that the means by which he works out his purposes is precisely through the prayers of his people. Well, I'll say that again. God in his sovereignty has actually ordained that the means by which he does work out his purposes is through our prayers. I'll give you an illustration. When God sends rain, he also 
generally sends the cause of rain, the clouds, doesn't he? This morning it was sunny, there was no cloud in the sky. It's actually beginning to cloud up now because it'll probably rain this afternoon. It's very odd to see a completely clear sky and then rain suddenly dump down. Because when God sends the rain, he usually, like he's doing now, will first send the cause of rain, the clouds. Now, of course, God in his sovereignty could send rain without clouds. Of course he can. But he generally doesn't. In fact, I've never experienced that. God in his sovereignty could do all things without us. But in his grace, and because he regards us as friends and sons and daughters, he chooses not to do them without our participation in lots of ways, but primarily through prayer. So that quote, without God we cannot, without us God will not, actually came from St. Augustine, an early, probably the most influential early church theologian. And if you really want to look at the whole Bible, that's actually God's plan from the very beginning for humanity. He creates, he saves, he calls people. Why? So that we would partner with him. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden created in God's image to rule and to be rulers under God over the world that is created. He wanted to partner with humanity from the beginning. It continues through Israel, his chosen people. Remember, they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And of course, it finds its climax in Jesus, the perfect man. But it also continues beyond Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, in his body, the church. Right? We saw that a little bit last night. That we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As his church, as his hands and feet, Jesus himself says in Matthew 18, what you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We actually have been called to partner with God. See, God didn't save us to be passive backseat passengers. He saved us so that we could partner with him And that was his creation intention all along with humanity. Right from the garden. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. Okay, so what does this mean? This means, and I want this reality to really sink in with us. Because if we get this, this will change the way you view prayer. And hopefully it will change the way you pray. There are things that will not happen if we do not pray got that? There are things that will not happen if we do not pray. There are people that will not be converted. There are children who won't be protected and safe. There are churches that won't grow. There is justice that won't be done. There are nations that will not be evangelized. There are problems that will not find solutions. There are sicknesses that will not get better. There are sins that will not be forgiven and conquered. There are religious freedoms that won't be preserved unless they are prayed for. At this point, some of you are thinking, hang on. Many things have happened and I haven't prayed for it. Well, the answer to that is, of course, You know what? In God's grace, someone else has prayed for it, and you're just benefiting from it. As a pastor, I benefit from so many prayers prayed on my behalf, even in the midst of my prayerlessness, for my family, for my church, for my own life. Sometimes I wonder, on the last day when I find out who's been praying for me, and it's probably going to be anonymous people I barely even remember from like decades ago, 
They've just committed to praying for me and my family. Like, on the back of their prayers, even in spite of my prayerlessness, God has been doing stuff in my life. Thank you to those people. But it's no excuse for me not to pray. Do you see what I mean? Sometimes it's because others have prayed for it. Believe it or not, people have prayed for Kingsway Evangelical Church before you even had a name, before it even had an idea of being planted. There have been people who've prayed for more churches being planted or second-generation Koreans being reached. Someone's prayed for it. That's the point. There are things if we don't pray for, it won't actually happen. Now, for me, this is one lesson. This one lesson has given me a greater urgency to pray about everything. Like, doesn't like if you realize this, don't you want to just pray about everything and pray about everything in detail? And how much more so should you want to do this as a church, as a body of Christ? Like, here's the thing: if God loves the prayers of individuals and He ordains that things would happen through the prayers of individual Christians, sons and daughters. What do you think he's going to do with the requests of his beloved bride and his body, i.e. the church? How much more is he going to regard the prayers that are prayed when we do it together? You know, the book of Revelation tells us that right now in heaven, the prayers of the saints are like incense before God. James chapter 5, we read earlier, tells us that the elders of the church are to pray for the sick and the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. Why, that's an amazing promise, isn't it? Which means that when you guys, I don't know how often you guys do prayer meetings, but I trust that you do, and I hope, I hope this results in more desire to pray together as a church. You know what? When a church gets together for prayer meetings, this is no small thing. Heaven and earth moves at prayer meetings. Now, I almost feel a little bit ashamed telling that to a bunch of Koreans. Like, you know your history, right? Do you, do you know about the Korean revivals? You know why Korean prayer exists? If you don't, you really need to find out because this is your history. It's, it's a precious thing that, you, that God has done um, over 100 years ago in the Korean church in bringing revival. Started from actually where it now is North Korea, ironically. But the, the way that revival broke out... Um, a, a, actually happen in meetings where there was such a, a, an outpouring of God's Spirit and this urgency to confess sins and repent that the, the, the leader of the meeting just said, look, you just all pray. And everyone just started praying where they are that the whole Korean prayer started in the midst of revival. And Koreans, I don't know about you guys, but I know that you guys have crazy hour prayer meetings. I don't know if you still do it at Kingsway, but like 5 a.m. on a Saturday type prayer meetings. That's like a normal thing for Korean churches. That's amazing. Like, do you know the heritage you have? Do you know that you exist? Your families are Christian, that Korean churches exist because people pray like this. Right? Don't give up that heritage. There might be lots about your Korean church heritage. You're like, I don't want that part of that. (laughs) All right? There's some really, really precious things, and one of them is prayer. One of them is prayer. Okay, let me, let me close up. Um, what was the result of the Moravian prayer vigil? The 110-year-long prayer meeting. Well, the Moravians' hearts began to burn with the things that are on the heart of God. Their hearts began to burn for the unreached peoples of the world, people who had never even heard about Jesus. So they actually unofficially started the modern mission movement. That small group of 300 Moravian refugees over a 15-year period sent out 70 missionaries. Three, a church of 300, can you imagine a church of 300 sending out 70 of their people as missionaries? 
who went and lived among unreached peoples. Back then, you know, when you went on the mission field, you took your coffin with you, right? There was no furlough, no opportunity to return. There's no insurance. You often lived, died, and your children died, right? That's what they did. They went and learned the culture, learned language, and told them about Jesus. Now, one of the churches that the Moravians started sent out 200 missionaries themselves. One historian estimates that the Moravians would actually be the largest denomination in the world, except that they just didn't start a denomination. Whenever they planted a new church, they gave it away to another denomination. What a generous bunch of people. Uh, One Moravian missionary team happened to be on a ship headed for the American colonies in 1736. The ship was caught in a horrible storm, and everyone on board, including the captain, thought they were all going to die. But these Moravians on board... They had gathered into a circle, and guess what they were doing? They were praying, but they were also singing hymns. Now, there was an Anglican minister, a priest, aboard that ship who realized in the middle of the storm that even though he had gone to church his whole life and he was actually now an Anglican pastor, he realized he didn't know if he was going to go to heaven if he drowned that day. And this Anglican minister, he was so astounded at the faith of these Moravians, what they did have, and he realized then that he didn't have what they had, And so he was curious. He asked them, and the Moravians told this Anglican minister the wonderful truth about being born again through faith in Jesus. And how because they had faith in Jesus, they had absolute assurance of their salvation because of what Jesus had done for them. That blew this guy away. (laughs) A couple of months later, this Anglican minister had an experience of being born again as he placed his faith in Jesus as the Moravians had told him. Do you know what the name of that Anglican minister was? It's John Wesley. If you know it, don't have time to explain about Wesley, but if you, you probably have even heard of John Wesley, even if you don't know much about him. But you see, that's what one prayer meeting did, one prayer vigil did. A chain of events that even led to the conversion of one man, John Wesley, through whom God brought hundreds of thousands of people. I'm going to get the band up. We're going to get ready to sing. But let's just have a moment to sit in a little bit of time to respond. And what I might get you to do is, once again, just stand. And it would be greatly amiss if we didn't pray, right? So we're going to pray in a moment and get you to, to just pray where you are out loud as you're used to doing. And the first thing you might want to do is just praise and worship and thank God. And give honor to Him because He is big and He is able and He is willing. So why don't you where you are just praise God for His sovereignty his fatherly goodness, his power, his willingness, his compassion for who he is, because that forms the basis of our prayer, doesn't it? Why don't you do that for a moment? Just pray on your own, out loud.
you to um, pick up the second point of my talk and maybe confess to God times when you have been prayerless because you've just been too big. We've been proud. We've been self-reliant. Spend some time just laying that before God and asking Him to forgive us for the times when we've actually, really, essentially become idolaters, thinking that we are much bigger than we are. Spend some time confessing that to God. might have to think about this one. If you imagine for a moment that on some issue, for some person, for something, there is, that God has actually put you in the middle between Him and that thing and achieving that purpose, whether it's for someone's life, something for the world, something that you see really breaks your heart in the world, that breaks God's heart that actually imagine God has now taken you and put you in the middle to be the one who will intercede on behalf of that issue, that thing, that person with God. And then he's saying to you right now, I want to use your prayer to bring that about. And what is that thing? What is that? Who is that person? It may be something really outrageously miraculous. It may be so big, so impossible, you can't even imagine. But right now for a moment, I want you to picture yourself as God's chosen person to be praying, interceding for that person, for that thing. So what is that thing? And with the confidence of the third point I just mentioned, right, that God actually wants to partner with you, with your prayers. Why don't you right now, where you are again, intercede, pray, put that, lift that before the Lord of heaven and boldly ask your Father in heaven for that person, for that thing, for that dream, for that hope, for for what's on God's heart. Why don't you do that right now?
Lord, we thank you that we have been called in your purposes to be the means by which through our prayers to see these things happen. And we pray that we might not just pray this once today, that we would be people who will persistently pray it. That we would be knocking on your door until you answer these prayers. Because you choose in your goodness and your grace to even use us. But because you choose us and you call us sons and daughters of the King, that our prayers mean something incredible. You say that your spirit intercedes for us. You tell us that Jesus also prays for us and is in heaven bringing our very prayers to your throne room. What privilege we have. And so we pray that we would be people who are committed to praying for all the things that are on your heart that you've also maybe put on our heart. For the people we've prayed for, for the issues of the world, for our church, for revival, for all the things that matter to you. We now present before you, and we pray boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing.